Welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest today is Pete Cronis. Uh, is that how you, is that how you say your name? Cronis or Cronis? Either sounds right to me. <laughs> uh, Chief Information Security Officer, CISO at Turner Broadcasting. And Pete, I specifically wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about a new book that you've written called uh, The Cyber Conundrum, available on Amazon. Uh, which uh, carries the tagline, how do we fix cybersecurity, which is an incredibly bold statement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can't figure out what's wrong with it, so uh, yeah, trying well, to address see- how we fix it. Give me a sense of what went into your thinking about even uh, you know, putting, going out on a limb saying that there is a way to fix this. Yeah, sure. Well, so first of all, Ryan, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. Look, I, I think, um, look, CISOs struggle, I think, with trying to build and adapt uh, uh, to the ever-changing uh, cybersecurity landscape. And I think part of the challenge that we have is is that we're, we're putting a lot of band-aids on things. We're not getting into the root causes behind uh, why things are the way they are today. And so we try to do in the, the cyber conundrum is really kind of make the case uh, that fundamental change is needed. Um, and, you know, uh, we spend a lot of time thinking a little bit about, uh, first part of the book is really about making the case for change. What's wrong with cybersecurity today? Um, suggesting a moonshot. And then we go into exploring some moonshots from history, getting a man uh, to the moon, or I should say getting a human to the moon, defeating fascism, and then eradicating polio. And looking at the characteristics of solving complex, difficult, uh, sometimes what what's perceived to be impossible, impossible challenges. Problems, right. Yeah, like in, uh, very similar to cybersecurity. And then, you know, proposing some ideas. And, and I certainly don't think um, any of these ideas are unique to me. These are uh, ideas that I think uh, many cybersecurity professionals think we need to tackle. Um, and so it's just a, you know, a, uh, a basically a suggestion on how we move forward. And, and, you know, the book's about trying to get the conversation started. And so, you know, forums like your podcast are a good way to do that, I think. So I, I don't think you'll get any pushback uh, that it's broken and it needs fixing. <coughs> but I wanted to, uh, you know, really dig into your head and get into a specifics. Um, you know, cybersecurity for as long as we've known it has been this uh, cat and mouse approach where you're basically just triaging and just trying to risk management, uh, determining where is, where, where, where is risk tolerable and how do I manage it? How do I assign whatever resources I have to making sure I'm mitigating these risks that I've identified? That's, what we, we, that's in a very general sense. And then we, we plug in patching and uh, monitoring and all, all the other little uh, edge solutions. When you say it, it, it can be fixed with a more uh, strategic national approach, what what specifically are you talking about? And and uh, are you are you suggesting that we'll get to a world where this triaging and and this emergency room doctor approaches is going to go away? Well, I, here's what I, I could say is that we need. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it in my mind, and, and the folks who study this or live this every day, that a more comprehensive solution is required. Especially, you look at the way technology is evolving. Uh, even some of the things like 
you know, uh, encryption and uh, some of the things that, w- that, that do work really well uh, um, in the security world today. Uh, so even some of that stuff breaks when you start to look at quantum computing and and uh, uh, artificial intelligence and and how it could be used uh, by our adversaries to uh, 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 break or crack some of our our good cybersecurity practices today. So, you know, I, I think it's easy to make the fundamental change that cases needed uh, changes needed today. Um, but if you you take a look at uh, you know the way technology is evolving, it is going to be an absolute imperative that we change uh, uh, in the future, in the near future, and. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. What does that change look like? And what does our world look like if we get one of these moonshot approaches to stick? What would cybersecurity look like in, say, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, so here's what I would say. I I think there's certainly no silver bullet. And if this were easy, it'd be solved already. But I I think we need to solve fundamental challenges. And many of these fundamental challenges um, live outside uh, the CISO's panic control. So I'll give you an example. Let's talk about speed to market with software, software mm-hmm. development. And, and, you know, when I say software, I'm thinking about uh, services as well in the cloud or software that, you know, you're running on your laptop or Mac, uh, uh, laptop or uh, desktop, uh, you know, or running in your servers, you know, the whole gamut. Uh, ever since software has been created, it's about getting kind of features to the marketplace before your competitors. Right, which and is the so, enemy of security. I, I think so. The way it's set up today, it certainly is. And so, you know, if you if you lived in a world where the company that built your car sent you a part every month and told you you needed to install it uh, on your own because the part that's in there today is defective, you would find you would sell your car as quickly as possible and move on to something else. Yet we accept that with software today with patches, right? And and some vendors. Uh, uh, release patches on a monthly basis, and you know, people in the security community are thankful that they're doing that work. However, it just doesn't make sense in the global scheme of things. We have to get better at writing more secure code. Well, that's a really complex challenge because human beings haven't figured it out. Forget Microsoft or uh, you know, or you know, uh, uh, Apple or you know, Oracle or whoever else. Yeah, no one like, has They're all releasing hundreds of patches. They are. They are. And and, and I'll give them some credit in that, like, uh, you know, the the, the complexity of operating systems, if you take a look at that, has has really uh, exploded, say, in the last 10 years. Um, And so going from maybe a billion lines of code to maybe 10 billion lines of code, there hasn't been a tenfold increase in vulnerability. So we're making some incremental progress uh, and writing more secure code, um, but it's, it's not meaningful enough. Um, and so we're always going to play catch up. So for cybersecurity to be, you know, uh, to, to fix cybersecurity, you have to go behind, uh, uh, the root problems. I, I mentioned speed to market with software. How do we secure the human and people's digital identity in cyberspace? That's a big deal. Lots of fraud, uh, lots of, uh, uh, complex, uh, things that are happening in, in the digital world, you look at the uh, Russian interference in the election, you look at uh, people's identities uh, being stolen, you look at um, uh, uh, online banking fraud. Uh, you know, when you add up all of the impact to the to companies, to, to humans, it's in the, you know, billions of dollars, it's, it's pretty, pretty significant. So we need to figure out a way to do that. I think we need to figure out a way to bring the government into the cybersecurity conversation 
And, you know, that won't be a popular idea, but I don't know how we do it without it. I've spent a lot of time up in the last year in Capitol Hill talking to legislators, and uh, they, they are not uh, very confident that they can provide leadership in this space to to set a national strategy and a national policy uh, that will, you know, help solve this problem. And then I think like corporate executives also, corporate executives and boards of directors need to to expect more from the people who are uh, running their IT systems and uh, from the, the, the people who they're buying software from. And so, you know, I think that those are probably areas that we should focus on and that's what's proposed in the book. So the Moonshot includes elements of all of those different areas. Do you think we as an industry have a stomach for getting a human to the moon? Uh, and, and I ask specifically because at the time there was like, there was there were all kinds of uh, motivations to get these things done. Polio was, polio was eradicating villages. Yeah. Uh, uh, polio was considered, people were more worried about polio. Uh, the number one concern in the early 1950s was nuclear war. And the second thing people were worried about was polio. More people died in car wrecks, more people died from cancer, but polio was, was striking. It was scary because babies were, were, were being born deformed. Well, and I, I think the challenge was, um, you know, polio uh, outbreaks didn't exist 100 years before. And so, uh, and then they kept, just kept getting worse. And you're talking about 200,000 people in the early 50s that were going to uh, contract polio or were contracting polio and you know, 51 and 52. And that number was only going up. And so, you know, even though not all of those people ended up uh, uh, paralyzed, or uh, of death, that you're still talking about 10s of 1000s people who, who were paralyzed uh, from polio, uh, and uh, 1000s of people who died. And so that was that was really a concern. Um, but here, here's going back to your, your first part of your question. The reality is, this isn't really up to companies anymore. This is a national security priority. Uh, our, our, uh, and, and, you know, this isn't me, you know, sounding the alarm when you go and you talk to folks who are at the NSA, who are at the, uh, defense department, who are at department of Homeland security, uh, who are at the state department, they'll tell you this is a national security priority. However, um, uh, for folks like me who are in private industry, uh, you know, very often you feel like you're on your own. Uh, and so, and that's the, what that, that's what I was getting at when I talk about whether we have the motivation and stomach for a complete rethink of this. Is is you have all these competing interests, and I I, I don't want to get into a whole nation state discussion about nation state hacking nation states and who's, you know, who's worse than whom. I mean, that's another discussion for another time. But when I talk about if we as an industry have the stomach for it, who do you propose take? Uh, the leadership role in this? Is it government? Is it partnership with private enterprise? Is it uh, academia? How, how do we get started with even like approaching these moonshot ideas? I think it's a, it's a great question. Look, it's going to start with enlightened leadership at the national level. I, I, you know, some might say even international level, but we're going to need some enlightened leaders. Uh, that's one of the characteristics of moonshots when you took a look at getting to the moon and defeating fascism and eradicating polio. That was one of the most interesting things that came out of uh, my exploration of those and trying to figure out what we need to do to create a moonshot. You need that enlightened leadership. In the case of uh, uh, polio, it was uh, Basil O'Connor and FDR. 
who in mm-hmm. the 20s uh, uh, started the Warm Springs Foundation, which became the March of Dimes Foundation, which funded the research and drove uh, the national uh, priority around eradicating polio. And so, uh, well, and it's Bill Gates a, Foundation today that's putting the finishing touches in it. In, in, absolutely, in in, in, in you know uh, third world countries, and again, that's at, private enterprise with uh, with with donated money. Absolutely, and I think what you're going to see it needs to be a public private partnership. Um, and the tent here's the challenge to solve this problem: the tent needs to be much bigger than it is today. Um, because when you look at these moonshots, we talk about this enlightened leadership, which is really important. But there were thousands of people who were who were working to make polio victims' lives more comfortable, who were doing their research. Uh, we talk about uh, the strategy for defeating fascism in the book, but boy, you know that was there was this master strategy, but the tactical execution was what won the war, battle after battle, uh, uh, and getting you know humans to the moon. Uh, there were thousands of people that worked on that project. And even though it was Kennedy who said, we're going to do it, uh, it was thousands of people who made that happen. So so I think what you, again, you really need is enlightened leadership. Um, uh, you need uh, the private sector and corporate leaders will play a role. Uh, we'll need some uh, gigantic kind of uh, well-respected personalities to kind of lead the charge. Uh, we'll need some enlightened leadership in Congress. We'll need it at the federal level. Uh, and we'll need it in private industry. And then, you know, uh, and then I think what that will do will hopefully start people focused on developing the types of uh, transformational innovations that are needed. This is tech and capabilities that will need to solve the moonshot that don't exist today. And so I think that's uh, I think that's key and critical. Um, there are a number of transformational inf- uh, innovations uh, that were required uh, uh, to get uh, humans to the moon. Let's talk a little bit about polio. Um, and this is this is what's, what's really interesting, I think, in this study, is generally the people that are knee deep in in solving cybersecurity are probably not going to be the people who are are going to create the innovative ideas that help us solve this problem. It's going to be people from outside, from other disciplines. That's another interesting thing about exploring moonshots so you know you, you had most most uh, researchers working on uh uh the inoculations using what's called a live virus which is you know basically uh a, a live form of the polio virus that's uh, uh injected into the subjects which uh when done appropriately will uh, uh create an immune response from the body well um just so happens Jonas Salk said, you know, I don't think that's the way to go. All of our live virus uh, inoculation experiments have failed. As a matter of fact, it killed more people than it saved. So I'm going to try working with uh, the dead or weakened pathogen, basically a, de- uh, a dead virus. And it just so happens he was able to get his version faster uh, than everybody else. Uh, and so he saved uh, potentially millions of lives. Now, the virus or the, the inoculation we use today is a live form of the virus, um, but uh, that live form virus was perfected years later. And so he saved uh, a few million people from getting the disease, hundreds of thousands from uh, potentially being um, paralyzed, and tens of, of thousands of lives. Uh, between, I think it was 50, 52 or 53, when he came out with the uh, uh, with his... Uh, uh, inoculation, and then I think it was uh, in the late fifties, early sixties, when uh, Sabin came out with his his uh, uh, version. So, you know, I think it's going to be the innovators. It's going to be the people who are 
who are outside who are making the change. And this isn't in the book, but you look at uh, folks like Elon Musk, who he is uh, transforming. Uh, Literal moonshots, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Well, yeah, I wasn't even talking about his face, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, a Mars shot, I guess. Yeah, um, how, how, how do you connect that directly to cybersecurity? I mean, is there like a specific area that's ripe for this type of innovation that changes things culturally and holistically? Is I think there's going to be a couple of things. I think you need enlightened leadership at the federal level inside the White House that's going to set out a national priority. And they're going to really uh, uh, drive the collaboration. Now, today we've had um, the, the suggestion in the book, and certainly this isn't the best, probably the best idea, but it's the, the idea that I could think about. Suggesting the book is uh, we have a cybersecurity czar who, with the uh, enlightened leadership of the president sets a national strategy and national priority uh, that drives policy decisions uh, and also uh, uh, makes economic decisions at the federal level that drive uh, changes in behavior in the industry. And I think, look, I think there can be economic incentives in, in legislation. Uh, the book explores those. Um, but what we, what we also realize, and this is going to be the the biggest challenge in this this process is that um, there also have to be penalties uh, for poor behavior. So if you are a vendor and you don't have good cybersecurity, it, uh, the idea would be we could create uh, economic incentives to help you improve and to move industry toward better cybersecurity practices, whether it's incorporating them in their software or in the devices that they manufacture um, and, and sell. Uh, there, there should be some uh, uh, some public-private partnerships that identify what good looks like and, right, and create some basic requirements in place, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, there's also some interesting uh, things to model off of. So, I don't know if you're familiar with Underwriters Laboratory um, and and uh, what they've done. Uh, they've been around for since the 1800s, and you know, if you pick up a lamp or any electrical uh, 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 gear in your house it's likely there's a UL mark in the bottom of it, basically stating that um, this product has been designed to meet the standards set up by Underwriters Laboratory, and it's been tested to meet Underwriters Laboratory uh, 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 strict standards. There have been and, attempts uh, to do this in cybersecurity, though. I think Margin Sarah Zatko. Um, absolutely. Cyber, yes. cyber UTL, cyber ITL. Cyber, cyber uh, ITL, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, and, and, and they're working on, on some sort of consumer reports type uh, testing and scoring. Yeah, uh, so for much, some much. Yeah, Mudge started that with a grant from DARPA, right? right. And then he, he left, uh, where did he leave Facebook, actually? Was it Facebook or Google to actually go and... Google, uh, and then I think he's at... Uh, uh, at Stripe now. Stripe, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I don't know uh, Mudge and Sarah, but I know of their work, right? So I, I think that's a great place to get started. We need to do that on a national scale, right? And look, if I'm buying software, and I know that it's been tested to a standard, that creates... Uh, and all, all other things are equal. Now I have a guarantee of secure software, one vendor over the other. I, I think I'm going to go with that that secure software. So you can you can use policy, you can use economic incentives, and you can use the marketplace to change behavior. And make no mistake about it, we're talking about changing behaviors, which fundamentally is hard, right? The tech doesn't exist, uh, the will to do it doesn't exist yet, and um, and then. Uh, 
the incentives, the policy doesn't exist yet. So there's a lot of work to do, certainly. Uh, and I, I feel like I'm asking the same question again: is, is whether we, as an industry, have the stomach for it, and and we we still can't we we still can't figure out you know who drives it. Uh, well, let me let me no no I I, I think it's a lot of help me help right? me with some specifics help me some specifics because for years we've talked about okay public private partnership should be yeah driving this this is what we need this is what I, you know what I mean I just feel like I I do look the conversation is circular it, in, well it's circular but here's the reality you're going to need a president that understands this is a national priority you're going to need uh, to have uh, that president most likely work with Congress to develop. Uh, policies uh, that help drive uh, economic benefits for uh, private industry uh, to adopt better security standards. And then you're going to need an enlightened marketplace that uses and selects uh, uh, criteria uh, uh, or uses security to select uh, uh, more secure products and services in the marketplace. So you're going to need the government, you're going to need the market, uh, you're going to need enlightened executives along the way to help drive these fundamental changes. And so really what the cyber conundrum is doing is is introducing these fundamental concepts to the conversation uh, and, and trying to help get people moving. Now, if you're looking for uh, this is exactly how you're going to do it, no one has those answers right now. What we really have to do is sit down and make this a national priority, line up the enlightened leadership uh, at the federal level and and even in private industry, and and drive for fundamental change, right? And and so we're at the very early stages of this moonshot, which is why it doesn't feel fully formed. Uh, it's not fully formed because we still have a lot more work to do. Oh, there's a train going by my window. Uh, I have heard people recently make the argument to me that we are actually getting better at cybersecurity. Uh, forget about all the. Bri- for, I'm, 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 I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate and listing some of the arguments on their side. Sure. Uh, uh, Pre Windows XP Service Pack 2 machines didn't even ship with a firewall turned on by default. Software didn't update itself. Google Chrome wasn't even available with a sandbox. I mean, platforms have become a lot more resilient. Includes a lot of uh, uh, anti-hacker technologies and mitigations. Uh, Windows is a lot more robust than it was not even ten years ago. Uh, the iPhone is 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 uh, is a fully powered computer in the palm of your hand that's incredibly secure. Patches itself. Apple is on top of patches. Has a sandbox. Uh, technology has improved to the point where ten years is an incredibly short uh, uh, amount of time. We uh, platforms are much more hardened uh, secure and you can tell me is it easier to sell security to your CEO today than it was two three years ago I'm sure it is uh, look I'm, I'm the first CISO at Turner because they realized that uh, they needed to do something different and I, I don't disagree that there so they're wrong are these people making this argument that incrementally well, over the course of five ten years we've gotten so much better and have gotten a grip on things or are they head in the sand uh, here's what I'll tell you. When you look at the big trends, it's not good, right? So if you look at the number of software vulnerabilities found in commercial software last year, it was double over the year before. Right, but the argument there is, the argument there is, and, and, and we can discuss this at length, is um, is number of vulnerabilities mean nothing if it's not exploitable or if the cost to exploit it is higher and higher and higher and the bar is being raised through. You know, I went to the first pawn to one contest in CanSec West, God, what was that, nine years ago. 
and you needed one vulnerability to pop a MacBook. Uh, you needed a single vulnerability to compromise Internet Explorer at the time. Today, you have to stitch four or five vulnerabilities together, get out of a sandbox. The, 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 the burden has been shifted heavily towards the attacker, right? So like, vulnerability count, vulnerabilities will always be there, but vulnerability counts isn't necessarily an accurate measure of, of robustness of a piece of software to, to an adversary. Well, Is that a fair well, discussion to have? No, I, well, here's what I would say. Because, because it can't be exploited today doesn't mean it can't be exploited tomorrow. And you're spending a lot of time, energy, and effort patching stuff because it's because it's made with flawed software. So the reality is, as a risk management strategy, uh, there are a lot of people who are not skipping Windows patches. Uh, if they do skip Windows patches, it's because it's something really super severe has happened. So here's here's what I would say, uh, Ryan. It's my opinion uh, that it's getting worse in that the cybersecurity attacks are becoming more intrusive, more invasive, and more global in terms of scale. And so 10, 15 years ago, if you told me, you know, hey, uh, there's a virus that's going to come out and it's going to infect so many machines, uh, it could potentially take down uh, large uh, industries within inside a company, I would say, uh, it's never happened before, right? That's not likely to happen. Uh, we can't say that today, right? I, I mean, the the, uh, the damage and, and destruction of some of these attacks today are unparalleled. Yeah, and so what I would we say thought is, was a ransomware attack, a simple ransomware attack took uh, this Maersk company offline for 10 yeah. days, having them rebuilding hundreds of thousands of machines and rebuilding an Insane. entire infrastructure over a, 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 what is considered in the anti-malware world a rudimentary piece of software. Absolutely. And so I, I think, um, look, I think the, the way uh, the tech ecosystem works today, it's too complex to to manage risk. And so that's where I think fundamental change comes in. And when you start to think about developing and building software that can, maybe we start off by building software that can defend itself. Uh, uh, and then we move, as we move and evolve into an environment where we can write uh, bug-free or nearly bug-free software. Um, so I think there needs to be uh, lots of evolution and a little bit of revolution in, 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 in the way we operate. Because fundamentally, uh, cybersecurity is about managing risk today. It's not about solving risk. And so, um, so that's the big challenge that we have today. And we're running large swaths of our economy. Almost every area of our economy is dependent upon uh, 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 technology to run and function. And it will become more so in the future. Right. Uh, so I think the risks and the stakes will actually be uh, growing larger and higher. And so, yeah, look, I look, I'm, I've been part of that evolution and, 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 and revolution in the last uh, uh, 15 plus years, helping to make uh, the environments that I work in safer. And, and certainly that's something we should all be proud of. But it doesn't uh, seem to me this is my opinion. This is based on the research that I've done that it's evolving in a way that is uh that's going to meet the future threat. It certainly doesn't feel like it's it's certainly uh, uh, easy to do today, uh, especially for smaller companies. They struggle. Maybe if they're lucky, they have your billion dollar company, maybe one billion dollars. Maybe you have one or two or three people that are doing cybersecurity. Uh, you know how do they how do they win in this space? It's it's uh, for many of them very hopeless.
you've been a turner for a while. I mean, you're like an anomaly in the CISO world, a, a world where there's turnover and churn at an alarming rate. Um, when when you view risk management or risk tolerance in your environment in a media company, is it different from, say, uh, uh, CISO at a software vendor or CISO at a cloud provider or CISO in a bank? Um, uh, I, I think... I think what's interesting, it, it's certainly, let's just say risk at a media company has certainly evolved. And for us, um, you know, uh, uh, we have uh, CNN. And uh, CNN is a, um, um, you know, is an international news gathering organization. And um, uh, they're trying to break stories. Uh, they're trying to create some transparency. And that, that creates friction. And that creates friction very often with some of the most sophisticated hackers and attackers uh, that are out there. Right. And so I think that's that's interesting. And that's a very different technical challenge than uh, like Cartoon Network, uh, which is also part of Turner and uh, Adult Swim, um, which has programs that people absolutely love. And this is true with TBS and TNT. But when you start to look at the age of people who are uh, watching uh, Cartoon Network, and uh, uh, they're very young, they're very tech-savvy, and they would love, if they could get a copy of that show before it airs, they would love to see it. Right, uh, so your and priorities, so, in, 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 and, and I had John Terrell on the, fo- on, on the podcast recently, he's a new CISO at Fox News, and he was talking about his mm-hmm. priority is availability and uptime, like making sure, you know, uh, a cyber attack doesn't take their flagship network offline but what you're talking about is like dealing with all those intellectual property issues supply chain issues where for instance you might have to send an adult swim uh season to a third party to handle encoding or to a third party some affiliate i'm not sure exactly how it works but you you have all these supply chain risks where your security is as strong as whatever your partner or your provider is is I think that's true for for certainly the entertainment and and uh, entertainment side of the business. It's true a little bit in news, but it's mostly because they have a lot of original content. Right. Um, I think HBO, the other, the other, HBO other just recently I'll... had an issue where uh, I, I believe the HBO uh, Game of Thrones leak was through a third party in India. It was one of these supply chain partnerships uh, breakdown. Yeah, I don't I don't want to talk about that. They're part of our our, oh, our family and. And I, I would say... Um, no, I'm just talking know, about what no, was publicly reported. Yeah, I, I would say it goes a little bit deeper than that in right. the public. But but to your point, supply chain's a, a critical issue. One other thing I want to mention about, about Turner with uh, CNN and Bleacher Report, we're also one of the largest web properties on Earth, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at the Comscore rankings, we have, you know, 130, 140, 150 million unique users coming to those sites uh, every every month. Um, and so, absolutely, uh, y- y- if you're in a broadcast network, availability is a big deal. You got to keep the, you don't make money when the show's not on the air, right? Uh, I think the same thing is true because we have such a digital presence as well. And not only is it CNN and Bleacher Report, but we, we run the websites for the NBA and NCAA, and, um, you know, we have a, a big relationships with them as well. Oh, so, absolutely. You guys have my favorite TV show of all time, uh, Inside the NBA, which is. Oh. Those guys are awesome. Uh, oh, I stay up very late at night wasting time listening to Charles. Um. <laughs> easy, so easy to, uh, it's so funny. Those guys are entertaining. One other thing that's worth mentioning as well is that Turner's uh, part of the tech transformation. So, What does um, that mean? Well, we're, we're, we have this, uh, what we call Reimagine TV initiative, and we're focused on really making, we're making a, 
uh, tens of millions of dollars in investment in technology. Uh, the idea is just that you'll be able to sit at home, turn on your TV, and watch what you want to watch in our programming. It may be what's scheduled. It may be what you like that's not scheduled. And so it'll feel a lot like uh, like Netflix. It'll feel a lot like Hulu uh, just from the way you watch TV. And then because viewers, especially younger viewers, um, are shifting their viewing patterns. So people are watching the same amount of content, even more content. We're just not watching it on traditional TV like their parents and grandparents, uh, where we have to be everywhere as well. And so um, uh, delivering a show uh, over the internet is completely different. Uh, the infrastructure uh, is different than delivering it to your TV. Well, we're going to marry the two together. Uh, we won't have separate workflows. It'll all be one workflow. Uh, and it'll give us a lot of uh, capability to customize content into your home, customize ads into your home, um, and, and do it in a way that uh, uh, nobody else is doing it right now uh, in the broadcasting space. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting time. We're solving uh, security and technology challenges that have never been dealt for at this scale before. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's very, very interesting. Are you also responsible as CISO for... Uh handling like OPSEC for CNN reporters, making sure reporters aren't being compromised and, and exposing their sources. Is that a, is that something that falls under your purview? And how do you, uh, you know, how do you handle like that part of the work that isn't necessarily tied directly to uh, securing assets or, or, or keeping attackers at bay? I think, I think it's really, uh, it's a really interesting challenge. And, and, and for the first time we have been working with CNN, I think in the history of the organization, and we have very close ties uh, with them. We work with their uh, with their uh, investigative groups. We've been out to the bureaus. It's a global presence, so we've done lots of training. How do you how do you securely talk to sources? Uh, how do you handle large volumes of information? We have policies and procedures and tools for them to, to help with that, and that, that's the first time uh, we've ever done that this last couple of years. I've been with Turner two and a half years. I haven't been here a long time. Uh, but two and a half years, and, and that was one of the first things we started working on. And, um, yeah, I, I will tell you that uh, uh, it's it's a pretty unique and interesting relationship, and CNN runs so much differently than the rest of the business because they are 24 by 7. Uh, it is uh, a late-breaking uh, uh, news environment. And, um, and I also own business continuity. So imagine this. In my first week, there was a uh, – I think there was a – a bombing someplace in Europe that might have been uh, Paris or and we were uh, doing two things we were making sure that all the employees in that location were safe and it wasn't a bombing in one of our facilities it just happened to be somewhere else in the city uh, there happened to be an event going on uh, that we were sponsoring so we wanted to make sure that everybody at the event was safe and at the same so we're trying to get people out getting get them someplace safe at the same time we're sending news teams in right to cover the story because right. This is new. So we're, it's the first time in the environment where, you know, you've got this business continuity crisis management team uh, working and, you know, to get people out, get them safe. And then at the same time, uh, you know, you're sending people in harm's way as well. Uh, and so it gave me a newfound respect, uh, I think, for journalists uh, who are, you know, kind of risking their lives to bring us the news and the story and to give us clarity. So I have a lot of respect, respect for them for doing that. Um, uh, uh, it's a different type of public service that I think a lot of people uh, don't think about. Okay, I just got one last question. Um, 
and I, I mentioned it earlier in one of my long rambling questions is, is it easier today to sell security to top management board of directors uh, just because of how hacking and election hacking and all, everything is in the uh, I think so. mainstream news? Is it is it much easier today? And what is a what is a, a, a final word you would leave with newer, younger CISOs, uh, f- f- fresh on fresh onto the boat, trying to figure out uh, how do I get more resources to do what is necessary? Uh, in an environment where resources are never unlimited? Uh, Those are great questions. So first of all, yes, it's much easier to sell, I think. The problem is people know there's there's an issue, but there's a lot of education that you need to do around what what makes sense. And so what you very often do, um, I think it's it's a challenge mostly for folks who have very technical backgrounds uh, who, who haven't had a lot of time to refine their kind of soft skills. Um, because you have to be empathetic in your communication uh, with the execs, with the board, understanding that they may not be technologists or they may not understand your world and presenting uh, the facts uh, in a way that they'll, they'll understand. You're not talking down to them. You're just trying to be kind of empathetic. Um, and, and so they're understanding a, a, these conversations now when five years ago it was much more difficult to discuss the ins and outs of security at a board level or at a, C, a sit down with a CEO, right? Yeah, I think five years ago I was talking to my board at a former company and, and that was unique. I think today it's 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 more common. The, that the security becomes, guy gets dragged in to, to update. Ab- absolutely. Now the question that I would have and, and a lot of the conversations that I have with CISOs is, all right, once you're in there, um, what's the outcome? Are you getting the resources that you need? Do they understand the risks? When you come in there and ask them for a risk-based, to help you make a risk-based decision or to review a risk-based decision, do, are they are they understanding it? And I think there's that's an area where I think we have a more work to do. Um, because I, I think what you'll see with enlightened leaders, and, and I'm fortunate to have that here at Turner, uh, these are folks who, who want to be part of the risk management decision. Um, so I have a unique structure. I report to the CTO and the CFO. And the CFO wants to make sure we have the resources we need, but he also wants to make sure that he's part of those risk discussions mm-hmm. um, because uh, he wants to make sure we're making the right investments. And that's really worked out incredibly well. There's a lot of C- there's a lot of senior executives who who aren't interested in in, in having those discussions. Uh, if you can find one inside your organization that is, uh, then they can be a, a strong ally. And so my advice for the new CISOs uh, coming up, this job is more about relationships than it is about technology. That's been my experience. Others might have different experiences. So how can you uh, get what you need done by helping other people get what they need done? Uh, and so if you can link up arms and create coalitions to help get things done, that's really important. Um, you can do that at the senior executive level, but it will also be important and true to do at the tactical level as well. How, how much of a thankless job is this? From the outside looking in, when we look at CISOs, I always think to myself, why would anyone want to be a CISO? It's just one of those, you, you, you keep the organization safe. Uh, that's what you're supposed to do. There's a breach. It's your fault and you're out. Uh, why would anyone want to be a CISO in this environment where it's 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 so thankless? The the average tenure is is very very short. Uh, is there 
from from guys in your in your space is there like a a, a certain inner drive and motivation that keeps you uh, on this hamster wheel because i feel like security is always this hamster wheel like, uh, patching security awareness training getting my external penetra- penetration testers in doing my necessary security assessments and okay let me restart it next quarter restart it next quarter is there like a certain drive and motivation that keeps you going I'm going to follow your mouse theme and say we have lots of cheese around here, so <laughs> that uh, helps keep things going. No, look, you, you, in life you have to find what makes you happy, and what I find is that this job, like uh, you know, you have to know a little bit of everything in order to be good at this job, or whatever company you're at, whether you're making butter or, and you know, you're entertaining the nation. What, what I'm proud of the fact is I, I'm helping to protect this company. Eighty percent of the company comes to one of our TV shows or websites every month. I never have to explain who I work for uh, or what I do because uh, people know it. They feel it. They love it. Maybe they hate it. Maybe they're not big fans of CNN. Uh, I have conversations with people who have lots of opinions on what they like and don't like about it uh, or Cartoon Network or Adult Swim or um, Turner Classic Movies. Uh, the reality is is that um, if you, I think this is a good job for people who like to collaborate. I think this is a good job for people who like to problem solve. I think this is a good job for people who uh, don't want to come in to the same, uh, 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 to, to do the same thing day in and day out. I, I never know, What's despite the, the fact that right? my calendar may be full, I never know what the day holds. And, and there's a little bit of excitement to that. Now, do I look forward to retirement? Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, while I'm here, uh, I we got to get these moonshots launched first before we Absolutely. talk retirement. Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, it, that's it. The book is The Cyber Conundrum, How Do We Fix Cybersecurity, available on Amazon. Let's, let's just finish up uh, on the book. Um, okay. Are you, are you like this one of these full-out optimists that will get there, or is this just kind of a, a, a call to arms that unless something is done, uh, uh, we're going to be mired in this lost war and the the bigger question is 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 there a timeline for fixing this in your mind that it, it's doable in say 20 years we can get to a point where the, these moonshots have been successful and we've eradicated polio we've eradicated cybersecurity as top of mind issue where do yeah, you look, see I, us heading yeah it's a good question look i, I think this is more of a call to action uh, and a call to arms, and it's really up to the U.S. Uh, or the, the, you know, to have this conversation amongst our citizens, um, amongst our technology leaders, amongst our executives. Uh, if we could have that conversation internationally, that would be great. But what do we really want uh, the world that we live in the future to be like? Do we want it to be a world where we can we rely on technology, and technology is a part of our everyday lives, and we think of it safely and securely, I think that's the answer to that is yes. Um, and so if we want that world, uh, uh, then we're going to need fundamental change. Because just, uh, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, um, uh, was it uh, Kirchhoff? He was a, a cryptologist uh, in the 1800s, early 1900s. He basically said, anything that you create for good, uh, somebody's going to try to use it for bad. That's a bastardization of what he said. And and um, I, I think uh, there are other technologists throughout the, the ages who, who also said that as well. Um, yeah, that's an ongoing so, discussion around encryption and, and dual use. Um. It's not just encryption, but it's any technology, right? So um, uh, 
uh, Claude Shannon, for example, uh, who helped create, uh, you know, microcircuitry. He worked for, uh, for Bell Labs and he created the, uh, uh, basically the theory, mathematical theory of communications, which, which all of our tech, uh, and, uh, uh digital, uh, communications platforms really kind of came, came from. He basically said, look, anything that you create, somebody's going to, you need to harden it and, and assume that somebody's going to try to crack and hack into it. And, and he was a big fan of, uh, Kirchhoff's as well. Um, but I think those are principles that people talked about and, and, you know, the early, uh, age of uh, uh, modern computing, uh, but uh, no one ever really acted on them. And that's the truth today. And I don't care what, what platform it is, Facebook or Twitter, so much good has, has been brought by a lot of those platforms. But we see they weren't designed um, uh, with, with uh, the safeguards in mind uh, uh, when, when they were launched and created because people weren't thinking about how people could use them for bad. What would happen when we connect a billion people together. Um, and so in the digital world of the future, we're going to have to build products and services. Uh, webcams in your house. I want to make it internet enabled. Sounds great. I can see what's going on in my house. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as, you, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the IoT world and all the oh, fun, yeah. fun interesting big, things big, that it brings and some of the significant risk it introduces to just absolutely. everyday homes. Absolutely. And so we're going to have to solve those problems in a fundamental and consequential way because technology is going to continue to evolve at a rapid pace and probably may even start to increase uh, as time goes on. And so if we're not building uh, these uh, these systems, these platforms, these components with security in mind, uh, then uh, we'll be uh, the... Uh, you know, we might be looking at a, a scenario where the benefits and the, and the risks uh, collide, right? There's just as many benefits as there are risks. And I'd hate to live in a world like that. Thank you very much, Pete. Best of luck with the book. I'm looking forward to digging into it and seeing where we go from here. Brian, thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it.